0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the final agreement emerging from the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, in which China joined with India in watering down the language from a phase out of coal to a phase down. Nevertheless, the COP26 president claimed an historic agreement that keeps the 1.5 degrees centigrade limit on rising global temperatures within reach. Joining us is Laurie Laybourne Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the UK's Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and has worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy. He is the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. Then, with the Department of Justice indicting Stephen Bannon for criminal contempt of Congress, We will examine the possibility he will defy the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection and never testify, but instead will go to jail as a martyr. Joining us is Bill Yeomans, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of positions, including Acting Assistant Attorney General. Then finally, with rising gas prices, the main driver of inflation, We'll examine the role of the murderous Saudi Crown Prince in refusing to help Biden by flooding the market to lower the price of oil, as the Saudis have done to help out previous presidents and MBS did for his friend Donald Trump. Joining us is Anel Sheline, a Research Fellow in the Middle East Program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from the UK is Laurie Leiborne Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and has also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy. And he's the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laurie laybourne
1: Langton. It's good to be here. Good to be talking to you again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Secretary-General of the UN has made the comment that our fragile planet is hanging by a thread. And in response to the final agreement coming out of COP26 in Glasgow over this weekend, Greenpeace is talking about the agreement as being weak and meek. How does it strike you, Laurie?
1: I think we've got to separate how we think about it into two areas where there should be progress. One is relative progress. So how far we've come uh, in comparison to where we were before. And in that, in, if you look at it in that way, there has been some relative progress. We've recognised, for example, that methane, one of the many greenhouse gases, not just just CO2, uh, has been recognised as a major threat. and countries have made promises around that. We've also had this initiative from Mark Carney, the former former, uh, governor of the Bank of England, around uh, more and more uh, asset managing organizations and uh, people that move money saying that they're going to stick to net zero targets. But what we really care about when it comes to when it comes to environment is absolute progress. Right. So not just how far we've come relative to where we were before, it's how far we need to go to ensure that we stabilize restabilize an environment that's been heavily destabilised by releasing emissions or destroying forests or destroying biodiversity. And in that respect, we are just not near where we need to be. The commitments that countries were making up uh, to COP26 and then subsequent to COP26 are just not anywhere near what we need to ensure that temperatures are kept below 1.5 degrees and to stop those really dangerous, potentially catastrophic impacts happening in the near future.
0: Well, the president of the COP26, Alok Sharma, uh, has said that this historic deal will keep the 1.5 degrees centigrade limit within reach. A lot of scientific evidence indicates that, you know, we're nowhere near that goal. And what it, we're, we've actually at the point of it's 1.2 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. above the 19th century level, isn't it? So we're, we're pretty close to 1.5 already.
1: Yeah, we should, we should always make sure that we say 1.5 is the goal because science has told us that if we start to, or the more we go above this, the more dangerous things become, right? Now, it's already a global disaster in many respects. Countries around the world, particularly in Africa, are already having to deal with very negative impacts on how they produce, how they can produce food, on other elements related to the weather in Africa uh, you've got countries spending as much as 10% of their GDP or money equivalent to that on dealing with these negative impacts already, right? And the further we go above 1.5, the worse those impacts become. Now that doesn't mean that it's all safe at 1.5 at 1.49 or whatever and suddenly becomes very dangerous at 1.5. It's a it's a kind of carbon highway to hell. And we need to get off as quick as we can. And it's difficult, I will say this, it is difficult to look at the current state of things and say that with the promises on the table, which are not sufficient, with the action that then governments are taking, which is not sufficient, it's very difficult to say that we could be limiting to 1.5 anytime soon. But we would never, ever let go of that goal because ultimately we can restore what has happened to the natural world and we can bring the temperature down, right? So when you're emitting... If we stopped emitting if we if we just stopped emitting tomorrow if that was possible the temperature rise would halt right and if we started to repair nature so more carbon is sucked down from the atmosphere then the temperature rise hopefully would roll back and that's always within our agency or is at the moment if it gets really bad if we go to temperatures that are way more much more than two degrees then we start to lose our agency over the natural world but at the moment we have that agency still. We just need the right commitments. And we need the right government action, which we're not getting at the moment.
0: And you mentioned uh, the agreement on methane to reduce it by 30% by the end of the decade. And there are some possible technical fixes as well. Uh, there's no technical fix for scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere that I know of, except nuclear submarines, and they have nuclear reactors. So the agreement that has gotten a lot of attention and some derision, I guess, is that China and India and South Africa joined together to water down getting rid of coal and changing the language of the final agreement from a mm-hmm. phase-out to a phase-down. Now, when you talk about loss and damage in the third world, what would replace these coal fire plants? I mean, is there sort of portable technology available? You know, wind and solar, of course it can work up to a limited degree depending on when the wind blows and when the sun shines. But, I mean, I'm not suggesting in any way that we shouldn't get rid of coal because it's such a clear, Mm low-hanging fruit. And we have a problem here in the United States and the entire agenda of Biden's uh, is hanging by a thread because of uh, a coal senator whose family company is in the coal business, uh, Joe Manchin. So, and, you know, Australia is, is also a sort of a problem here in the sense that they export coal. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can see that that's a doable thing, but is the resistance to do with the fact that there is no way to replace, you know, India being an example? Is it because they can't replace coal in rural areas? What's the rationale for keeping coal going? The Chinese, of course, are, are doing it too, even though they acknowledge that coal is one of the worst generators of CO2.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, okay. let me let me deal with two things. there. The the first, the immediate question you just asked about the rationale not going to renew coal. And then I want to talk a bit about the politics of coal on the first South Africa. You mentioned them is a good example of this. They are they have a a public company, Eskom, that manages their energy supply, largely coal. And they're having major problems with that um, at the moment. And of course, are not necessarily making the transition to renewables, which can happen. There is abundant sunlight, there is abundant wind in South Africa, and technology is improving all the time with these uh, sources of electricity, which are already some of the cheapest in history. The issue here is funding. The country, ESCOM in particular, doesn't necessarily have the money to invest now in building up that renewables capacity. And that sits at the heart of the overall demand from countries in Africa, from across the global south, that more money needs to be given to them to help them make this transition. They haven't got the startup funds in some cases to make that transition and then to get the ball rolling. And as we've seen in in Western countries like the UK and the US, once you get the ball rolling, once you go past this tipping point, you get this massive rollout of these technologies and it can become a key part of the grid quite quickly. So it's possible. It's very difficult for countries that don't necessarily have the resources that they can make those upfront investments. And that is why it is highly disappointing that wealthy countries have not yet followed through on their promise. And they didn't manage to do this in Glasgow of providing 100 billion dollars a year. That's all that they promised to a year to help with this. Now, with the politics of coal, um, we still find ourselves in a situation where. The current reliance on coal by many countries around the world, including uh, elements of the US, um, is being exploited by a lot of vested interests. You you mentioned the 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 democratic sense in the, the US there to exploiting that sort of weakness in the heart of economies at the moment where there's that reliance on coal to extend its life, which is highly dangerous. And the movements, the political movements that we've seen in recent years need to increasingly target those who are dragging their feet on phasing out coal and in the case of of elected politics we've got to and we are seeing this see the maturation of those movements into frontline politics because increasingly they speak for the majority and those who are, who are saying we should continue the use of coal even though we have renewables alternative renewable alternatives are, are not speaking for the majority
0: And again, I'm speaking with Laurie Labourne langton an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. And previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. And he also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy and is the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. He joins us from the UK where the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow have just concluded with an agreement that most observers see as somewhat underwhelming. Of course, in a year's time they're going to meet again in Egypt to see how far they've gone and maybe try and improve on some of the targets here. But just to continue the conversation about the North-South divide and the lack of investment, for example, in South Africa, its own energy company. What about the possibility, though, of just having some kind of portable electric generating systems of wind and solar that the richer nations could actually just simply, rather than have to have these companies that don't have the investment sort of languishing, why not just be able to come up with portable electric generating? Is, Is that possible? Is that doable?
1: I'm not completely on top of the the latest state of portable technology. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, capability on in a domestic setting for this, uh, particularly when it comes to cooking and, and other applications that are often, in many parts of the global south, reliant on burning wood or, or other combustible fuels. But an element of all of this is that the, the the countries on the front line of this are predominantly find themselves in the global south across the continent of Africa in Southeast Asia, parts of, of South America as well. Are we you know we know this? This is now a, a key uh, narrative in politics that we're all hearing. They they are f- already feeling the impacts disproportionately to other countries around the world, even countries like. The US or in Canada with the extreme heat that we've seen recently, other parts of the world, the impacts are often missed by elements of the media which are largely placed in these in uh, in Western countries. So these impacts are growing and growing in those countries and they contributed the least. When it comes to the support of global north countries in helping global south countries have those investments, get renewables on the ground, it is still very important that those countries are able to shape their own future, that they get to do this themselves. You know, this has got to be part of a wider process of rebalancing what have been extreme power imbalances across the global economy that have led us into this very dangerous situation now, where you know there's this sort of grotesque chaos, and I'm speaking as a British person here, of former British colonies who are still dealing with the aftershocks of the imperial colonial era, who then now have to face the, the, the dark reality of the impacts of the climate crisis, which they did not cause. And within that very uh, sticky and unfair politics, we've got to make sure that if in that moment of peril, countries like the UK or the US are helping those in the global south, they're doing it in a way in which those countries in the global south can not just preserve, but expand their agency. So I would like to see investment as grants, for example, and not loans in those countries so that they can chart their renewable greener healthier future uh, themselves
0: so in terms though of investments and pledges versus damaging from the increasingly roiling climate that we have mm. um, it's getting worse it's just manifested clear And every year we have worse hurricanes here in in the U.S., floods, fires here in California. You mentioned the heat and fires in Canada. It's all so obvious, and the losses are huge. I mean, Mm. the rich nations are the ones that have, (laughs) have the most to lose, right, in that sense. So is there a dynamic there? In other words... In terms of political lobbies, you've got ExxonMobil and others that talk a good game but are actually you know, involved in greenwashing and, and mm-hmm. furtive sort of <laughs> surreptitious conversations in the back rooms with lobbying, etc. Can you pit them against, say, insurance companies that are going to be taking massive hits? In other words, is there a business lobby that can really get behind the need to transition to renewables in this short window we have to hold the temperature down to 1.5, which many scientists think is pretty unrealistic in any case.
1: Yes. Um, and in some ways that's already happened. The Particularly the reinsurance industry, those who come in to insure places that have already suffered uh, have always been at the forefront of at least researching and and sort of cajole it, doing research on the on the problem and also cajoling people to to do something about it. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think as time goes on and we're already largely there, the number of people who will suffer from the problem and the impacts of it, the the extreme weather, it, the extreme weather, not just the direct impacts like extreme weather, but but the the knock on effects. Right. So. A great fear is that you, you get extreme weather events hitting some of the, the large breadbasket regions, the, the, the areas where food production predominates in the US, for example, and that will have an impact potentially globally on food prices, on availability of food, which can ripple out and disrupt already destabilized societies. So the the number of people who are are feeling this and suffering from it is growing. And also, as the cost of renewables plummets and the other technologies that we need to be using uh, get cheaper and are used more and more, you will get more people who also benefit from the solution as well. And we but we still need those things are happening, but we still need direct intervention from campaigners and others to expose the political lying and lobbying of people like the fossil fuel industry and to unseat them, to make them a sort of odious taboo like we've often seen in the case of say tobacco now or other, or other industries similar to that. And on the other side, we need more government intervention to stimulate markets in the right direction. Now, hang on, I'm gonna very quickly explain what I mean by that. I don't, look, think of the pandemic, right? Over here in the UK, we had one type of government intervention which was to say to people, you got to stay at home so we all don't let the virus spread. You then had another complementary type of government intervention, which was also to say, you're at home because we told you to be. We will now provide you with money so that you can survive at home if you can't go to work. This was our furlough scheme that other countries did around the world. And we will also invest massively in developing and then handing out vaccines. Right. And it's those two elements, the Sorry, you've got to now do this and we'll make it easier for you by giving you money or investing in the technologies that make it easy for you. We are not yet seeing the scale and pace of government action along both of those lines that the current emergency situation and it is now a global emergency situation with the climate crisis. We're not seeing the scale of that government intervention on both those sides that we really need.
0: Well, Laurie leiburn Langton, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: My pleasure. Good to talk to you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Laurie Leiburn-Lankton, Langton, is an award-winning researcher and writer and associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research in the UK, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and has also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy. And he's the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the possibility that Stephen Bannon will defy the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection and never testify, but instead will go to jail as a martyr.
2: I've been waiting for years to buy a brand new Cavalier.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bill Yeomans, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights, and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law, and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of positions, including Acting Assistant Attorney General, and he's now a Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bill Yeomans. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And it looks like the Justice Department was sort of judicious about uh, what to do about Steve Bannon. Uh, There was a lot of pressure, including, you know, myself. I was astounded that they appear to be letting Bannon get away with criminal contempt of Congress. I mean, if you can't enforce subpoenas and you're the first branch of government, according to the Constitution, I mean, it's just a terrible precedent, uh, but it looks like they've made a move and the grand jury has indicted uh, Steve Bannon on two counts of uh, criminal contempt of Congress and not turning over documents. So wh- how do you think this is going to impact um, Mark Meadows, who didn't show up for his deposition on Friday before the House Select Committee investigating James sixth?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you that this is this is is really big news, and in part it's big news because what the what the alternative might have been if the Department of Justice had not uh, indicted Bannon, uh, it really would have been a death knell for the January 6th Commission, uh, because these uh, Trump associates would have just stonewalled, and um, you know they might well have gotten away with it. Um, The threat of criminal prosecution really ups the ante for them, and that includes Mark Meadows. Um, Although, you know, Meadows' situation is a little different from Bannon's. Um, Bannon, uh, you know, um, both of them are relying to some extent on on claims of executive privilege and on instructions from Trump not to cooperate with the commission. Um, With Bannon, uh, well, with both of them, they've refused even to show up. And in the normal course, a witness cannot uh, assert executive privilege and then simply not show up for a hearing. Uh, What they have to do is show up for the hearing, uh, and then in response to specific questions, uh, they can assert executive privilege and refuse to answer. By not showing up, Bannon uh, made it a lot easier for the Justice Department, I think, because it really takes executive privilege off the table. Uh, He can assert executive privilege because... It's the crime is not even showing up, uh, and uh, uh, and so he has done that, and but with Meadows it's a little bit, it's a little bit trickier uh, because he does have a first of all a stronger claim of privilege, but he also has a claim of immunity, uh, which is this doctrine that uh, appears in uh, a lot of Department of Justice memos, Office of Legal Counsel memos which says that there are some advisors who are so close to the president uh, that they cannot be the subject of congressional subpoenas, because it's the equivalent of issuing a subpoena to the president himself. That doctrine is much criticized and has never gained traction in court. Uh, but the Department of Justice has, has laid it out in the past. And so Meadow's Uh, may well be relying on that, because he obviously was a very close associate of Trump. He was his chief of staff, uh, and uh, uh, so he he will argue, and his attorney has argued, that immunity uh, makes it unnecessary for him even to show up uh, for a deposition with the committee. I think it's a harder argument for Bannon to make, simply because he is so far removed from Uh, having been in the trump administration he served for what seven months i think in 2017 uh, hasn't held a position in the administration since then uh, and was was certainly uh, advising trump as a as a private citizen Um, so i think his his immunity argument is is non-existent i think his privilege executive privilege argument is very weak too Um, meadows is is i think going to be a little more difficult but there's no question that the threat of a criminal prosecution uh, Up the ante and, and puts, I think, more pressure on him to negotiate uh, with the committee. And I assume that uh, his counsel and the committee are um, uh, talking to each other as we speak and trying to figure out if there is some way for the committee to get some of the information it wants and for Meadows to avoid uh, a criminal referral.
0: Well, it hasn't happened for about 40 years where the Justice Department has indicted somebody for criminal contempt of Congress. And the reason is that people up until the Trump administration honoured subpoenas and took them seriously. But the Trump people have flouted their power and insulted the Congress to the extent that they routinely have ignored subpoenas and run out the clock. And that's clearly the tactic here. Now, Jeffrey Clark did show up, so at least he sort of was polite but he didn't answer questions. So is that the next tactic that Meadows could employ yeah. to show up, yeah, I think not right. answer I think questions?
3: Shows, yeah, I think that shows the difference between Clark's position. You know, he was in the Department of Justice and was removed from the president. Um, he couldn't claim immunity. He simply wasn't a close enough advisor to the president. Um, Meadows, Meadows and, and Bannon, uh, way back when, uh, were, of course, um, uh, very close indeed. So, yeah, what can happen next is, uh, well, with Bannon, uh, you know, Bannon's in the criminal process now, and uh, I think that's that's going to going to go forward, and there isn't much he can do about it. Um, but uh, I certainly don't expect him ever to testify. Uh, I think we've taken his testimony off the table. Um, but with Meadows, um, you know, it, it, what he can do, of course, is is uh, first, uh, you know, have a lot of back and forth about. Uh, this doctrine of immunity, and then a lot of back and forth about executive privilege, Uh, and then he can show up, uh, and I I expect that this will happen, that he will show up and then he will refuse to answer specific questions, uh, asserting executive privilege. Uh, At that point, uh, we can start the process all over again, and uh, they can do a contempt referral uh, for his refusal to answer specific questions. But as you can imagine, um, that all uh, will end up going to court, and will take a considerable amount of time.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Bill Yeomans, who's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights, and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law and served for twenty six years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of positions, including acting assistant attorney general, and he's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice. So given that the, the tactics of Trump himself and those around him, and particularly Bannon. Bannon has this kind of streak of defiance. I mean, when he got arrested for scamming these Trump supporters for a a a build-a-wall project where he pocketed him and his cronies pocketed the money and they didn't build any of the wall on the southern border, he very defiantly said, oh, this is all political. So my guess would be that he's going to stonewall and he's going to show up and on Monday afternoon before the grand jury. But what happens if he continues to be defiant? He gets, what, 30 days uh, minimum on each count up to a year?
3: Well, I mean, what will happen is he will insist on his process and he will be, um, you know, there will have to be an adjudication by a judge. Uh, Judge Nichols has uh, drawn the case, uh, who is a, a Trump appointee and a former Clarence Thomas clerk. Uh, and uh, the judge will uh, adjudicate guilt or innocence and then impose a sentence. Uh, all of that will take some time. Um, and uh, uh, at that point, once, once there's a sentence, uh, Bannon has no incentive whatsoever to cooperate with the committee. And so uh, I think that we are, are not going to hear Bannon testify. I do think we will hear a lot from Bannon, though, because I think he will revel in his indictment. He will revel in his prosecution. And, it, it you know, it fits into his political strategy, uh, and I think it will fire up a significant portion of the Trump base.
0: So, in other words, if he is sentenced by a Trump-appointed judge who's a former clerk of Clarence Thomas's, and that in itself raises some doubts, I mean, I, I imagine any judge must understand the separation of powers and the importance of the first branch of government under Article 1 in the Constitution, would be completely neutered if it didn't have the ability to compel witnesses to testify in congressional hearings. I mean, that seems pretty fundamental. But assuming that the judge is fair, what you're saying is that if they sentence him, then he, he won't have to testify. So how does the committee get around that?
3: Well, I, I, I'm not sure that they will. So what can happen is, uh, you know, the, um, under the statute, uh, he can be sentenced to, well, he has to be sentenced to at least a minimum of 30 days in jail uh, if found guilty. Uh, and the maximum sentence is a year in jail. Uh, and uh, so, he, and plus he can be fined up to $1,000, which will not be a significant penalty for him. Um, and... Uh, so he will serve his sentence. And then, uh, you know, the committee can come after him again. Uh, but after he served his sentence, there is no lingering obligation for him uh, to come and testify. Uh, they could they could try to do it all over again and re-subpoena him. Uh, but that's the problem with criminal contempt. Uh, it's it's very forceful because it's a threat of sending people to jail, and most people don't want to go to jail. I'm sure Mark Meadows does not want to go to jail. and You know, Mark Meadows has a law license, I believe, that he probably doesn't want to lose. And uh, so, you know, it, uh, the stakes for him of a criminal prosecution are pretty high. But for someone like Bannon, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're not really that high, especially if the, the jail sentence is short. And, you know, he may well get 30 days, uh, which, uh, you know, is, is not going to take him out of action for long, and then he will come out um, crowing about the political nature of this prosecution, Uh, and um, it's not clear that the committee will ever get testimony from him.
0: Well, they've also got others, right? Cash Patel among them, the protege of Devin Nunes, who ended up in the uh, Pentagon and appears to have had something to do with the fact that during January the 6th, when calls from the desperate Capitol police to the Pentagon for uh, help from uh, the National Guard were unheeded. Do you think they'll all follow the Bannon playbook? If on Monday Bannon, well, I don't know how quickly the the hearing will happen and wh- whether he'll be sentenced that quickly. But if that's the pattern here. Are they all going to follow suit? I mean, and and just...
3: Well, they may, although I I expect that some of them will show up and then will try to assert executive privilege in response to questions. That's the safer route for someone, uh, as long as they can do that, I think, without um, uh, offending Trump and having Trump turn against them. But uh, if if they show up uh, and then refuse to answer questions, then they can fight over whether or not something is covered by executive privilege. Uh, and whether or not Trump's assertion of executive privilege as a past president is going to override Biden's waiver of executive privilege, and it, and it won't in the end. Uh, but but that is something that can be litigated through courts. Um, I think the whole criminal process. I'll just let me just step back for a second. The whole criminal contempt process. Um, uh, this episode shows its shortcomings. And so you know, there's also something called civil contempt. Uh, which is probably the more effective remedy, which is that someone can be held in confinement until they agree to talk. Uh, And that's a a kind of contempt that's used with witnesses in courts and and, and in other situations. Um, That, you know, process uh, could be available through Congress uh, through its use of its inherent contempt power, which, of course, it hasn't used in about a century, uh, where Congress itself can adjudicate someone in contempt and then have them confined until they agree to talk. Uh, or it can be done through through civil courts, but that's a long and tedious process. So in this instance, uh, a criminal contempt prosecution may be the only real remedy, but it's not what could be the most effective remedy, which is to hold someone until they agree to talk.
0: And John Eastman, who was behind the, the memo that suggested that the vice president... Pence could renege on his constitutional duties and call the election for Trump based upon bogus evidence and wishful thinking. So what's going to happen with him? I mean, he he found Uh, it hard to get a lawyer, apparently.
3: uh, Yeah, I don't know know what's going to happen with him. I think he's probably, uh, he may well end up uh, being one of the few who cooperates to some extent simply because uh, he seems to like to talk. Uh, and he can talk about his legal theory uh, and uh, try to try to to sell that. I think it's you know it's going to be much harder for him to make uh, arguments about executive privilege because he he didn't hold federal office and that's not an absolute prerequisite but it makes it much more likely that you'll get away with asserting executive privilege um, so um, it wouldn't surprise me if he were one of ended up being more cooperative than say meadows or than
0: Bannon. So, just in the last couple of minutes, then, Bill Yeomans, this doesn't sound like any of this is going to be particularly helpful to get to the truth for the uh, Select Committee, and obviously, it means that the documents that they're trying to get from the National Archives, which Trump is challenging, are really critical. What's your assessment on where that stands? Again, it looks like Trump's going to run out the clock. It's already gone to the Appeals Court in Washington, and I don't think they're going to even hear it until November the 30th, right?
3: Right. But, you know, that's a, that's a really fast pace for a court of appeals. Um, and uh, and the panel is a, is a, a panel that is uh, very bad for Trump. So I, I'm fairly confident that uh, the D.C. Circuit will uh, rule against Trump. And, and I think they'll do that fairly expeditiously. But then, uh, clearly, um, Trump will try to take it to the Supreme Court and, there's a, a fair chance it will go there. I think, um, you know, it's it's it, it, in in this in this Supreme Court, it's hard to it's hard to predict that uh, uh, a majority will vote against Trump. But uh, I think Trump's case is, is fairly weak here uh, on on executive privilege, uh, particularly where you have a clash of, of assertions of privilege between a former president and the sitting president. Um, we have generally said that the sitting president is the best custodian of the office of the presidency, and uh, uh, his his assertion is going to have a lot more weight than the assertion of a, of a past president. Um, I think that position will prevail in the Supreme Court, but, as you suggest, it will take some time. And uh, if the court takes the case, it, it doesn't have to take the case, it doesn't have to grant cert, but if it takes the case... Uh, It certainly won't decide it before June, and uh, then we're almost into the the midterms.
0: And apparently, at least I don't know whether you agree with this, uh, Bill, that Clarence Thomas is now sort of the leader of the conservative clique, uh, even though this chief justice is ostensibly the head of the court. And given Clarence Thomas's positions, and he's got one of his protégés now hearing the uh, Bannon case, how do you feel about that?
3: Well, you know, as I say, it, um, this court—it's—it's uh, a—it's a risky proposition uh, to suggest that they will uh, rule against the former president. And um, uh, you're right that Clarence Thomas is now playing a central role uh, among the conservatives on the court. Uh, uh, you know, he's—he's he's now the the senior conservative, if you don't count the Chief Justice. Uh, and so. Um, you know, I think all bets are off when it goes to the court, but I do think that, just looking at it objectively, um, Trump certainly has the weaker hand uh, in his his uh, suit against the the National Archives.
0: Well, Bill Yarmuth, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. Well, thanks, Bill. And again, I've been speaking with Bill Yeomans, who's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law, and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of positions, including acting assistant attorney general. And he's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into rising gas prices as the main driver of inflation and how the Saudi crown prince is refusing to help out Biden as he helped out his friend Donald Trump. The
3: aerotrain was mine You bet I would moved it farther A little farther down the line Far from Folsom Prison That's where I want to stay And I'd let that lonesome whistle Blow my blues away
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anel Sheline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anel Shiline.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And you're just uh, actually back from Jordan last night. Um, Yes,
4: and Qatar, actually.
0: Oh, you and Qatar as well. So I take it, though, that what is going on now with President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, is the ultimate in realpolitik. The challenge is, you know, in realpolitik, of course, a nation operates not according to its ideals, but according to its interests. And we are at a point now where gasoline prices have risen 40 percent recently and apparently Mohammed bin Salman is refusing to turn on the spigot and pump more oil, which Saudi leaders have always been accommodating to U.S. presidents, particularly around election time, to reduce the cost of gas at the pump, which of course makes politicians extremely unpopular. And that's what's happening now. So who's going to win this standoff? Is MBS going to win eventually, or is Biden going to stick to his principle that he doesn't want to meet with this pariah responsible for the murder and dismemberment of the Washington Post reporter?
4: Well, I think it's important to keep in mind here that uh, I don't. I don't actually agree fully with the notion that MBS is solely trying to keep oil prices high in order to try to get at Biden. I mean, there are many reasons that oil producing countries in general and Saudi Arabia in particular want to keep oil prices high. And Mohammed bin Salman has promised an extremely ambitious domestic agenda to his population and has staked his entire legitimacy upon it. And he it has, to, you know, he's, he's given himself a deadline, 2030, and he's starting to run out of time um, to, to accomplish the sort of sweeping economic changes and um, levels of employment and just the transformation of Saudi society. So on the other hand, it's also important to keep in mind that, that Biden hasn't actually given MBS that much of a cold shoulder. I mean, we recently uh, learned of the announcement of, I believe it was $600 million in uh, sales of air-to-air missiles to Saudi Arabia. And prior to that, there had been a $500 million sale of helicopter maintenance. So both of these violate what Biden said he was going to do, which was to end all sales of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. He announced this um, back in February, and you know we we just saw Jake Sullivan traveling to the region and and meeting with MBS and other high level um, officials in the Saudi government, as well as stopping in the UAE and elsewhere in the region. So. I actually would say that um, while it is true that high gasoline prices at the pump certainly hurt American politicians, incumbent politicians, but I don't necessarily think this is just about um, MBS solely trying to punish Biden. And, And actually, I would say that to view it in that lens is a very American centric sort of view to think that it's all about us. Um, when in fact there are many reasons for for the high prices and for oil producing countries to want and need higher oil prices. Well, I think a lot of this speculation is because at a
0: recent CNN town hall, President Biden said when he was asked about inflation and the cost of gas, which is the biggest driver of inflation, he said that the supply is being withheld by OPEC. And so there's a lot of negotiation that is there's a lot of Middle East folks who want to talk to me. I'm not sure I'm going to talk to them, but the point is, it's about gas production. So that's pretty clear what he was hinting at there, right?
4: Um, certainly. Although, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's. I mean, it's it's certainly true that Biden has not spoken with Mohammed bin Salman, and I imagine MBS would like to speak to Biden. But I also, you know, don't don't think there's necessarily absolutely rock hard evidence that this is the reason we're seeing Saudi oil production remaining high. And furthermore, I mean, you know, the the other members of OPEC are also participating in this decision. So I, I again, just think there are a lot of reasons that keep oil prices high. And the, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is oil prices have been quite low for and obviously, we saw last year during uh, the spring of 2020 when the the price of oil actually went into negative territory for the first time. Um, and so, while it has risen precipitously, and and you know, for Americans who are also experiencing supply chain disruptions and uh, inflation of certain goods, so the the you know a 40% increase, rapid increase in the price of gasoline is certainly a shock. But you know, this this is comparable to prices we saw several years ago. So it's it's really not unprecedented. And again, I'm speaking with Anel Sheline, a research
0: fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. Well, obviously, Russia, for example, I'm sure Putin is perfectly happy to have the oil prices high, and there's some concern that he's massing troops on the Ukraine border because his situation at home is a a little tenuous, and people are getting tired of him. But on the other hand, uh, if he's got more money in his trickle-down economy, given how much him and his cronies steal from the top, that's going to help him. And it's obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it's going to help MBS as well with his ambitious plans. But really, at the heart of this, if there is indeed a standoff, and you're not entirely sure there is between Biden and MBS, MBS wants the seal of approval, doesn't he, to become king?
4: Well, he doesn't really need America's seal of approval. I mean, I I think he would probably... Uh, take umbrage at that. I mean, the Saudis very much feel themselves to be kind of masters of the universe, <laughs> to a certain sense. And MBS in particular, I think has has that. I, I don't think he's really waiting for, for Biden's permission to become king. He has to wait for his father to either step aside or pass away. Right. Obviously, it's opaque trying to figure out what's going
0: on inside the ruling family there. But I imagine he's not entirely popular with a lot of the Saudis and he's di- he's different from the kind of consensus types that have been in power there and particularly uh, since Mohammed bin Nayef was clearly the favourite, particularly here in the United States, and he's been under house arrest and he leapfrogged over um, Mohammed bin Nayef to become the crown prince and a lot of help from Donald Trump there. I mean, when you say the Americans aren't the ultimate deciders... How much is this guy different from the rest of them? He's been putting so many people in jail from the royal family, confiscating their fortunes, and torturing, intimidating, imprisoning. I imagine a lot of them are quite nervous about him. And when you've got the former deputy intelligence chief holed up in Canada, apparently they also sent the same hit team that murdered and dismembered the Washington Post reporter. They sent them to Canada to get him. He's referring to uh, MBS as a psychopath. So... Is Biden operating on principle here that he just doesn't think you can endorse a psychotic murderer?
4: Unfortunately, no. I I wish that Biden, in fact, were treating MBS like more of a pariah. Um, As I said, he has allowed through two major arms sales that violate what he himself had committed to. And we've continued to see the U.S. continuing to support the Saudi-led war in Yemen by providing um, just um, assistance, maintenance, spare parts to the Saudi Air Force, 75 percent of which is American made and cannot operate without U.S. contractors and, and assistance. So I I don't think Biden has, in fact, been acting according to a particular a particularly strong principle of trying to hold MBS accountable. I think he came into office more committed to that. He wanted to show a very clear difference between himself and Donald Trump, who clearly was very much in bed with the Saudis and his son-in-law Kushner in particular. And so, you know, we first saw Biden lift the foreign terrorist organization designation that was one of the very final acts of the Trump administration, um, of the Houthis, which I do think was important. I mean, the Houthis are are not good guys, but arguably that that designation would have would have really only punished the Yemeni people um, without necessarily having that much of actually an impact on the Houthis themselves. So I do applaud that which happened quite early and his announcement about ending arms sales, I think was was important. And then he did release the report that very clear, not not um, completely 100 percent sure, but made it quite apparent that the U.S. government does consider MBS responsible for ordering the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, which had been withheld under Trump. Um, But it was after that that we then no longer saw quite so much pressure. I mean, as as we've said, Biden has not himself spoken with MBS and has claimed that this is because MBS is still crown prince. Um, But King Abdullah, who passed away in 2015, was crown prince for quite a long time in the U.S interacted with him because he was the de facto sovereign. Um, so I think Biden's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too here. He's trying to you know, show he's not talking to MBS, but he'll send his national security advisor to talk to him. Um, and he's maybe not allowing all the weapon sales that Trump certainly would have, or even Obama would have, but he's still allowing some, even though that goes against what he himself said. I mean, in terms of MBS and his popularity at home, he's still quite popular with the people and especially with young people. And this a big part of this has to do with the fact that under King Abdullah, hundreds of thousands of young Saudis were sent abroad to study under the King Abdullah scholarship program. Um, and so these these young people got to see a different way of life and they, they're really excited to have things change in Saudi Arabia. And so he he has a lot of support there. Uh, you're right that the, the royal, you know, he operates very differently than any member of the royal family arguably ever has. That historically the, the Al Saud have had to sort of rule a bit more by consensus, you know, certain powerful princes controlled various ministries and, you know, the king would have to act um, somewhat in concert with his his brothers generally. Well, thus far only, only brothers have been rulers following King Abdulaziz. And so this would be the first time, or this is the first time that we're seeing a a de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia acting really so much on his own and going against the wishes of many of his powerful family members. And as you said, locking up many of the, those that he considers a, a threat to him. Um, and he's clearly a, a um, very dangerous and ruthless <laughs> person. But I, I, again, I, I just don't consider Biden's behavior to demonstrate necessarily that Biden is fully sticking to his principles here on not engaging with Saudi Arabia.
0: Well, but it seems that for the longest time, I mean, the compact that the Al Saud family, the ruling family have with the Wahhabis seems to be what's been ruling the country. The, the deal being that the religious authorities have so much sway over social life but in exchange, they allow the Al Saud family to run the whole place and to give them the authority, I guess, the religious stamp of approval. Is that in any way frayed? I mean, it's obviously, the young people are so relieved that the Mutawa are no longer as intrusive as they are. But is the deal still with the Wahhabis? And frankly, that kind of austere kind of medieval ideology I think we've paid a price geopolitically, haven't they? In many ways, that sort of Wahhabi religious fanaticism, if you will, has inspired al-Qaeda and uh, Boko Haram and the Taliban, etc. I mean, you can certainly make a case that they've spread a lot of, of extremely toxic and reactionary form of Islam around the world that's had a profound effect on geopolitics as well as on the nature of Islam itself.
4: I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the effects of sort of the hegemony of religious authority that Saudi Arabia has used, you know, both its control of the holy sites of Mecca and Medina, as well as its vast oil wealth, as you said, to spread this notion that this deeply intolerant and conservative interpretation of Islam is the most correct form known as wahhabism although in saudi arabia they you know even mbs himself rejected the notion of wahhabism so i certainly agree that it has had quite a pernicious effect around the world um i think to a certain extent though mbs has been very successful at spreading this narrative that he has transformed saudi islam and he has transformed society um the, i was in saudi arabia in march of 2019 and it was you know, conducting interviews and everyone was was just saying, you know, we we wish you could see what it what it was like before and how different it is now. And, you know, women in particular being able to drive and to work and to um, just operate in public spaces in a way that historically in Saudi Arabia just has not been the case. And so, as you said, these young people who are are very eager for their their society to transform do continue to support him. On the other hand, I part of his narrative that he has totally changed everything. I think it's important to keep in mind that he has also introduced levels of oppression that haven't been seen in decades in terms of who, you know, the numbers of people he's locking up. Arguably he's also he hasn't really disempowered the Wahhabi clerical establishment necessarily. Many of the same deeply conservative imams and religious leaders are still in positions of power on the High Council of Ulama, for example, but they know they can't spout the same kinds of super conservative rhetoric that they were accustomed to spouting, you know, but that's not who he's locking up. He's he's locking up actually often individuals who sometimes advocated for greater democracy or for perhaps a more... Um, open interpretation of Islam. I'm thinking of people like Salman al awda who has been locked up in jail since, I believe, September 2017. His health is failing. His son is in the U.S. and is advocating as hard as he can to try to get him and other influential and arguably more moderate clerics who have called for, for this these kinds of changes. Um, and this is who he's locking up, as well as female activists who called for the, um, the driving ban to be lifted, for example. So he's trying to make very clear that he's the one who will make these changes and that he's not responding to pressure because, I mean, arguably he is, but he doesn't want to in any way make uh, activists think that they can get away with demand making greater demands arguably because i think if if it became apparent that the government were more responsive to people we would probably see much higher numbers of of protests and and you know political activism in saudi arabia but right now i think the the feeling there is just very much one of fear um well surely but just in closing here isn't that
0: the mo of the Al Saud family? The idea that it's all about them being magnanimous. The people have no rights, no power, no representation. It's all about petitioning the king and uh, and at the mercy of his generosity or his his uh, authority or fury yeah. or, <laughs> in this case, murderous impulses.
4: Yes. Oh, certainly. So you know, I think. Uh, he he's true to the al Saud form in that respect although again he he has made certain key changes as you said disempowering the religious police certainly uh, was was a big change so not to say that he, he hasn't um implemented these sorts of social transformation but again i do think it's important to keep in mind that he's not He's not liberalizing and he's not allowing any sort of, you know, political participation or even free speech or he, he's moving in the opposite direction on on those points.
0: Well, Anel Sheline, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
4: Thank you so much for having
0: me. And again, I've been speaking with. Anel Shiline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates to provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
2: guy that lives next door in